0: So we are in Ecclesiastes. Last week we finished chapter 2 and for those who are here for the first time one of the resources I'm using is James Kugel's book The Great Poems of the Bible. In fact, Ecclesiastes is the last chapter in that book and it's sort of what made me decide to read this. I kind of fell in love with it. Solomon of course is the wisest man that ever lived and you've all been through Proverbs and so forth, and you understand how people in the biblical region encoded wisdom. And they typically did it in short, little, pithy, two-phrase sentences. It was the characteristic of a wise man that he knew a whole bunch of these, and they were designed to inspire discussion. So they're sort of cryptic and terse and so forth. And the idea is that you read those and you're supposed to ponder on them and discuss them with people and tease all the meaning out of it. One of the fun things about Ecclesiastes is, of course, Solomon is the guy who's the wisest man up to that time in history and probably the wisest man ever, which, as I've said before, means that the number of these proverbs that he knew was quantifiable. So if it says he's the wisest man in the world, he knows more of these mashalim, the wisdom phrases, than anybody does. And one of the things about Ecclesiastes, even though it's written by him and he knows all of these, what he'll do in the chapters we'll get into tonight is he'll say, all right, here's sort of the general wisdom thing. But on the other hand, if you look at it this way, and it's that kind of a discussion, which is really kind of fun, I am hoping to get through about three chapters tonight. As I said earlier, I don't intend to spend the rest of my life in Ecclesiastes. So we're gonna start on chapter three. And when we get there, I'm going to read from Kugel's translation. And what I encourage you to do is read from your own translation and you'll see the differences. And as I said last time, one of the things that Kugel is trying to do is translate it into something that would make sense to us and give us a flavor of what it would have meant to the people reading it when it was written. And it's not often a literal translation. He takes liberties with the literal verse. So chapter three. So for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. That's my English standard translation that I just did. Now let me read his. For every one there is a season and a time of doing each thing under the heavens. Kugel's point here is, for all of us, we go through these various seasons, and since we are born at different times and we mature in different ways, each of us is going through some of these things, but we're not all in the same season. For those of you who are children of the 60s, you'll remember the birds? Okay. And it was really an anti-war song the way it was sung back in the 60s. And the idea there is that a society goes through these seasons, and that's very much not the flavor that Solomon intends here. What he intends is each one of us goes through these different seasons, and for each of us, as I say, we are in different seasons at different times, and what is appropriate and how you behave depends on what season you're in. Since it's an individual thing, according to Kugel's translation, that means that you may share the season you're in with other people, or God has put you in a season, depending on where you are and what you need to be. And as I said last time, as you go through the seasons of your life, things that are appropriate in one season are not appropriate in another. And the example I used is there are things that I did in my 20s and 30s that I know God has forgiven me for, and I hope people have. And it was forgivable in my 20s and 30s, but if I were to do some of that same stuff now, it would be unforgivable because I am supposed to be older and wiser and more mature. So very much that kind of a seasonal thing. All right, so now I'm going to read Google's translation, and then we can talk about it for a minute. For every one a season, and a time of doing each thing under the heavens, a time of giving birth and a time of dying. A time of planting and a time of uprooting what is planted. A time of killing and a time of healing. A time of breaking down and a time of building up. A time of weeping and a time of laughing. A time of mourning and a time of dancing. A time of throwing down stones and a time of gathering up stones. A time of embracing and a time of shunning and embrace. A time of looking for and a time of losing a time of keeping and a time of throwing away, a time of ripping and a time of sowing, a time of keeping silent and a time of speaking, a time of loving and a time of hating, a time of war and a time of peace. So what does a person gain from whatever he is working at? I considered all the activities that God had given people to occupy themselves with. He sets everyone right in his time, yet he puts in their minds a hiddenness so that a person cannot grasp what God has created from beginning to end. Thus I realized that there is nothing better for them to do than to enjoy themselves and accumulate what is good in their lives. He's done there. He says that that's a complete sentence. I'm going to read verse 9 through 12 in English Standard now because there's something in here that I like better than what he has said even though you can sort of get the idea that it's the same concept this comes across to me better than his does what gain has the worker from his toil i have seen the business that god has given to the children of men to be busy with he has made everything beautiful in its time also he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what god has done from the beginning to the end I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. In that last sentence, Kugel didn't translate. In other words, he stopped his translation short. Now, the place I want to sort of fetch up for a minute is verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I like that translation better than Kugel's. And Kugel's is he sets everyone right in his time, yet he puts in their minds a hiddenness so that a person cannot grasp what God has created from beginning to end. So Kugel's sense of it is there is something about you and something about the creation that is not quite in your grasp. You recognize it's there. You recognize that there is a part of you that's hidden, and I've talked about it in sermons that I've given, the idea that your soul is not entirely accessible to you. You know it's there. And the example I used is in a marriage. I know when Kay is out of sorts, whether she says something or not, and vice versa. You can just tell when the other is out of sorts, but I don't know what she's out of sorts about unless I ask her and she tells me. So I can see that there's something wrong, or that something good. I mean, it it doesn't have to be anything wrong. It can also be something good. And I can see that there's something going on there, but unless she chooses to tell me about it, it's hidden. And your soul is very much like that. You can tell when it's joyful, you can tell when it's out of sorts, but you don't always know exactly why. And that's part of the way you're made. Similarly, I like the English Standard translation. He has put eternity into man's heart. I am sure that his translation is just fine, but the idea of having eternity in your heart goes back to this idea that I was talking about, you know, cyclic time, and that's a big deal in Ecclesiastes, but the idea that the cycles are progressing towards something, and so that's a sense that there is something bigger than just what you can see as you're going through the cycle, winter, spring, summer, fall, Passover, Shavuot, the cycles we go through every year, But the idea of eternity is that you recognize that these are leading to something and that there is something beyond just you. There's parts of you that are not accessible directly, but they also create in you a recognition that there's something beyond you and a desire to connect with that thing that is beyond you, which of course is God. So the whole idea that there's part of you that's yours, I mean, it's your soul, but not within your control is very much throughout this whole thing. The comment was that Eddie Chumney had used an analogy that you recognize the old deal where you have a circular threshing floor and a center pivot, and they put an animal, an ox or a donkey, and he turns the pivot and the stone wheel crushes the grain and thrashes it to the ox. It looks like it's the same thing forever and ever you just keep going round and round and his comment was that the thing that changes is it gets deeper which is also a good analogy the idea that there is change happening even though you don't see the change as you are caught up in the cycles one other thing before we jump off of here verse 9 what gain has the worker from his toil one of the things that goes throughout this entire book is sort of a banker's eye view of life. All right, where's the profit here? What are we gaining from all this? And you'll see again that over and over as he's talking. Last time he explored being a fool. He explored being wise. He explored depression. Being a goth, you know, with the black and all that kind of stuff. He explored all those things last time. And his question was always, so what's the net of all this? What have I gained by Trying all this. And of course he keeps coming back to the fact that he's in a cycle. The cycles keep repeating. I'm all the way down to verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. That's English Standard translation. He does not translate that in his book. A couple of things. Notice that, first off, he's obviously saying that God is the author of the cycle. The cycles that we all find ourselves in. And going back to this idea of having eternity in our heart, he says, God has done it so that people fear before him. Well, the only way you can actually fear before God is to recognize that there's something besides the cycles. So he's put us in these cycles, but he's done it in such a way that we recognize that, A, we are in a cycle. I mean, that's obvious to anybody, but he also recognizes that there's a purpose and a pattern to this that God has set up, and that leads you to the fear of God. And that which is already has been and so forth He started that back in chapter 1, and this is simply a restatement of that. But the thing I like in verse 15, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. In other words, there's nothing new under the sun. And God seeks what has been driven away. So what has been driven away? Think flaming swords and cherubim. We have been driven out, haven't we? We were driven out of Eden. And God put cherubim at the entrance with flaming swords, remember? So what has been driven away is us. And so what God is seeking is what has been driven away, us. And God seeks what has been pursued, is the literal Hebrew. I like mine much better. Verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said, in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now stop there for a minute. The idea that God will make everything right is straight out of Proverbs. The wicked will eventually crash, and the virtuous will eventually prosper. But he's taking that Marshall, if you will, out of Proverbs, and he's now going to talk and expand on it. And it's going to be sort of on this hand, on the other hand, kind of thing. In wisdom literature, the idea is that it's going to even out in this world. And Job is the example of that, because Job does even out in this world. Job goes through all of the stuff that he goes through, And his three wise friends are repeating these one-liners at him. And he keeps saying, I'm innocent. And at the end, it all does even out. Because God restores to him what he lost, double. And God rebukes his friends for being sticklers. So what Solomon is saying here is that in the place of justice, there's wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And what he's talking about is human corruption. In fact, he's talking about the things that are coming out here in the United States. you look at all the machinations that are going on with the FISA court, with the FBI, with the CIA, all those folks, what we're discovering is there is wickedness in places that should be places of justice. And first thing you should do is take comfort. There's nothing new there. But the idea that our hearts are wicked indicates that even the things that we set up that are meant to do good can be corrupted. So verse 17, I saw in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot who can bring him to see what will be after him. So he's obviously talking about mortality. So the beginning of this paragraph is in verse 16. and says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice and so forth. What Solomon is doing is he is looking at things in the natural. So he is very much putting on a set of goggles. And the goggles are the same goggles that evolutionists wear for example. And what they say is that the only thing that can be known is that which can be seen, touched, tasted, felt, and heard. In other words, if it is not natural, we can't deal with it. If it's not measurable, if it's not observable, then we can't deal with it. And In fact, I remember years and years and years ago, they televised a Kansas Board of Education hearing that was an argument for intelligent design. An atheist lawyer who was on one side and then everybody in the world that had any sense was on the other. And the atheist guy says, if you can't observe it, we can't account for it. And therefore you cannot teach it because you cannot prove it. That was his argument. And that's the argument that Solomon is making here. He's looking at an animal and he's looking at a man. They're both made out of meat. And when the man dies and the animal dies, the dead meat laying on the ground looks pretty much the same except for shape. And eventually, if you don't bury it, both of them start to smell. What he's saying is we cannot observe whether the soul of the animal goes up or down or whether our soul goes up or down because the observable thing we can see is this pile of dead meat. Now, backing up, remember he said that eternity has been put into the heart of man so what he's doing is on one hand he's saying God has given us this sense of wonder in this sense that we don't know everything but that there's more to be known he's given us that sense but on the other hand we live in the observable universe and looking at a dead animal and looking at a dead person as I say except for shape there's no difference So you have to go back to this thing that God has put in your heart, which is you know that there's something more. It's not under your control. You can't measure it, but you know it's there. So what he's therefore saying is essentially a version of, you've seen the old t-shirt, he who dies with the most toys wins. So he's saying if you just observe things in the natural without this God-given sense, of eternity, then he who dies with the most toys wins. That's what Paul says, for example, I think in Corinthians. He says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, we are most to be pitied of all men because we are following what God tells us to do and we are foregoing a great number of earthly pleasures because God says not to. And if there's no resurrection, duh, I could have had a V8. Paul is saying the same thing as Solomon is saying here. And this phrase over and over and over again, under the sun. And what under the sun is code for is that which is observable. That which a scientist could measure with some kind of an instrument. That's what under the sun means. And that is in contradistinction to what's under the sun. And so as you see that phrase, it should go ding, 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 ding. What he's talking about is in the natural as opposed to in the spiritual. The problem with wisdom literature is that it limits itself to what's observable. There's three voices in scripture. There's the voice of the priest, the voice of the king, and the voice of God. Generally, you can tell who's speaking. So what wisdom literature is, is the voice of the king. That is human wisdom. If you do this, things will turn out well because you're not doing nothing stupid. The voice of the priest is teaching Torah. And one of the things about Torah is there are things in Torah that are not humanly understandable. In other words, I have no idea why God doesn't want me to eat pork. Don't know the answer to that. But he says not to. And this is genealogy now. This is not scripture. My belief is, as is said here in in Ecclesiastes, there's stuff that we can't know because we've lost the spiritual connection that we originally had in the garden so there's stuff that is dangerous and harmful for us that we can't see anymore so what god does is gives us rules that don't make any sense in the natural and i regard those as keeping us off of the edge of the cliff keeping us from stepping in something that kind of stuff that we can't see And that's the voice of the priest. And then the voice of the prophet is God speaking through a man directly into the creation and giving us new information. So it's God's policy that he works through people. So for God to do things, he's got to get people to say them. If he had a different policy, there's nothing we could do about it. It's his policy. He decided on it, and he obeys it. But it's his own policy. He's sovereign. So the idea then is if you want to have a Messiah born in the city of Bethlehem to a virgin who is a descendant of David, you have to have prophets that say that. So throughout the Old Testament, there are prophets that are speaking words that then allow God, according to his own policy, to bring things to pass. So you have the voice of the priest, the voice of the prophet, and the voice of the king. Solomon is a king. Which isn't to say that Solomon isn't spiritual. It's just that this is a different voice. Chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And this is a purely naturalistic, how can you bring a child into the world knowing all of the evil that's going on? That's an attitude. And you have people who don't have children because, oh, there's going to be a war, and I can't bring my child into. Someplace where there's going to be a war, oh, or there's going to be a famine, oh, or whatever. And so they don't bring children into the world because of this precise philosophy. And notice, this is under the sun. Verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. You ever heard of keeping up with the Joneses? That's what he's talking about. And he's saying that is a driving factor in people's work and creativity. And he's absolutely right. It is not, however, the only one. There's also the sense of eternity, if you will, that causes people to do things that are not directly profitable and are not directly in competition with their neighbors. I'll remind you, I said it last time, vanity is not what we think of as vanity, which is pride. Vanity, in this case, is insubstantial, transient, not something that is permanent and of permanent value. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now, this is a marshal. He lives off of his own fat. He is too lazy to do any work, so the only thing he has got to live off of is his own fat, which means that he's going to die. This he just sort of says without comment. Some of these things he will comment on, some of them he'll just flop out there. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. This is straight out of Proverbs. And the idea is being at peace with little is better than being vexed with a lot. One of the things it says in Proverbs is the more you have, the more mouths show up to eat it. I mean, it's, all, it's just human wisdoms, Proverbs. So, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, those that he never asks. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This is a marshal, but he's expanded on it. And the idea there is this is someone who has no one except himself to work for. So he is toiling and working and all that kind of stuff. And he's gaining more than he actually needs. As opposed to someone who has family or something that he can provide for. And then the excess that he is toiling for makes sense because he is supporting others. Verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. And if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And the idea is, If you are by yourself, you are vulnerable. Therefore, it is not wise to go through life alone. Verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There is no end of all people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. And I'm not sure I can unpack all that. And the thing I'm not sure about is pronouns. First part is easy. Better to be a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. You could read this and see that youth is better than age. That's not true. So poor and wise is better than a king who is foolish. Young and old is exactly reversed. Because what he'll say later on is better is the house of mourning than the house of feasting. So the idea then that a house of mourning where you see what has happened and what a man has done with the life and potential that God gave him is better than just the potential that exists at the beginning. It's not all right, but it's certainly normal to be foolish when you're young. We all started off as young fools. If you don't ever progress, then you have wasted the potential that God has put into you. So don't take this to be youth is somehow better than age which our society does and this goes with our society being materialistic our society being focused under the sun so just looking at things under the sun to be old oh well I'm almost at the end and maybe have some pains I may not be able to do all the stuff I used to be able to do boy it was sure better when I was young and that's what our society values The amount of money that we spend on people trying to stay young is astronomical. By the way, it doesn't work. You're still going to age no matter how much you spend. All right, I'm not going to try and repeat all of that, other than to say I still don't understand the pronouns for sure. We've had now three or four different interpretations, and what I will suggest to you is this discussion is a practical example of how these wisdom phrases are to be used they're ambiguous and you have now teased about four different interpretations out of that one sentence all of which are good and that's the genius of this way of encoding wisdom is that it engenders discussions like that it's what it's designed to do so chapter five guard your steps When you go to the house of God, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. And by the way, you could substitute in Proverbs, guard your steps when going to the house of the king. The idea being, you are coming into the presence of one more powerful than you. And what you don't want to do is be a fool under those circumstances because everybody remembers Nadab and Avihu, who went into the presence of God in a foolish way and perished. This could also be applied to the parable of the poor man and the publican that Yeshua talks about. The publican doesn't realize that he is doing evil, but Yeshua, God, watching what's going on, does see evil, even though he thinks he's doing right. Two, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. The idea here is you can't get in trouble for what you don't say. And if we go back to the publican and the poor man, if the publican had simply gone in and worshipped and not said anything, he would not have become an object of scorn in Yeshua's teaching. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying, it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Now, I am taking dreams in this case to be ambition. When you've got a whole lot of ambition and you've got grandiose plans, you tend to talk about them and do a lot of chatter and the idea is when you do voice your ambitions and your ambitions turn out to be not terribly wise then you are making a mistake by babbling in the presence of God he's talking about two things here thing one is coming into the actual presence of God the temple of the tabernacle the physical place where God's presence is But the other part of that is you are always in the presence of God when you are running your mouth. And that goes back to the lesson of the soul, which we said last time, is sort of God's double agent. Where you don't have complete access to your soul, but your soul has access both to you and to God. So if you're running your mouth and saying dumb stuff, your soul is reporting it back to the king. This is both... Earthly and spiritual wisdom. You don't get into trouble for what you don't say. You don't get into trouble for not making a vow. Yeshua says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and anything else is a potential to be sin. So don't chatter what it says. <laughs>